Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. I'm Donald Jr., the brains. I'm Ivanka, the beauty. And I'm Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Donald Trump is now counting on those three as portrayed by SNL in his New York fraud trial. And today he whined, leave my children alone, like they were toddlers on a playground. And today, Donald Trump Jr. took the witness stand for the first time, answering questions about his role in the alleged scheme to falsely inflate the Trump Organization's assets. Eric and Ivanka are waiting in the wings. Also tonight, Arizona Secretary of State Adrian Fontes joins me right here on set following his testimony today before a Senate committee on the ongoing right-wing threat to free and fair elections and to election workers. But we begin tonight with new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson's first official day at work, now that the People's House is back in session. We've already established that Johnson is an ultra-right-wing Christian nationalist who will probably push a nationwide abortion ban. But for the time being, the priority is recrimination and votes on dueling censure resolutions. One is against Democrat Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American in Congress and a woman who has family in the occupied West Bank. And it's being pitched by Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course. The QAnon-adjacent congresswoman accuses Congresswoman Tlaib of, and I am not making this up, inciting an insurrection in a House office building during a protest in support of a ceasefire in Gaza. The other censure resolution is against Marge Greene herself, citing her record of racist rhetoric and conspiracy theories. The House is also expected to take up a resolution to expel Republican George Quitara Revash Santos, or whatever he's calling himself these days, who's been indicted on federal fraud charges. Important stuff. Oh, and at some point, they'll also have to fund the government before it shuts down and deal with the Biden administration's request for aid to Israel and Ukraine. Republicans put all of that on the back burner while they fought over a speaker. In the meantime, one of the biggest opponents of January 6th insurrectionist Jim Jordan as speaker is calling it quits. Normie-ish Republican Ken Buck of Colorado says he will not return. He won't, I mean, will not run for re-election. Buck says he's disappointed with Republicans' inability to do things and offered this mealy-mouthed excuse about why he wouldn't vote for election denier Jim Jordan, but did vote for election denier Mike Johnson. And I'm also disappointed that the Republican Party continues to, uh, you know, rely on this lie that the 2020 election was stolen. And Mike um, went to the Supreme Court with a, um, a, a, a challenge uh, to the election. I think going to the courts is, is one thing. Um, trying to move the, the mob from the mall up to the uh, House floor and, um, uh, you know, interrupting the congressional proceeding, a whole different issue. It is a sign that in this party, you cannot survive without fealty to MAGA and the big lie. Buck's announcement comes on the same day that the architect of the legal attempt to overthrow the 2020 election that Buck just minimized hits the ground running. 
Speaker Johnson's first big legislative move is a bill for standalone aid to Israel, keeping aid to Ukraine separate since, you know, MAGA loves Russia and paying for it with IRS spending cuts. I think if you put this to the American people and they weigh the two needs, I think they're going to say standing with Israel and protecting the innocent uh, over there is in our national interest and is a more immediate need than IRS agents. How very Republican to look out for the billionaire tax cheats. I feel like there was a line in the Bible, which Mike Johnson says summarizes his worldview about rich men being about as likely to enter the kingdom of heaven as being able to fit through the eye of a needle. But, you know, details. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has called Johnson's proposal not serious and says Israel and Ukraine should not be separated. And uh, in a sign that the H-E double hockey sticks is frozen over, Mitch McConnell agrees with Schumer. And shock of all shocks, cutting funds to the IRS is actually more expensive. The Congressional Budget Office estimates Speaker Johnson's plan would add nearly $27 billion to the deficit by 2033, although Johnson didn't seem too concerned about that. Not surprised at all. Only in Washington, when you cut spending, do they call it a, Are you alarmed an increase in the deficit. So much for the supposed party of fiscal responsibility. Meanwhile, the White House has already threatened to veto Mike Johnson's Israel bill. In a statement, the Biden administration said denying humanitarian assistance to two million Palestinian civilians, the majority of them women and children, would be a grave mistake, adding it inserts partisanship into support for Israel, making our ally a pawn in our politics at a moment when we must stand together. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell of California and Maura Gillespie, political strategist and former aide to Speaker John Boehner and to Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Uh, Congressman, thank you both for being here. Let me start with you, Congressman. Where, in your view, are these uh, censure votes going? Well, uh, Joy, look, uh, it's, it's pretty rich that Republicans would seek to censure anyone on our side when Jim Jordan, who was one of their candidates for speaker, had tweeted out not too long ago, just Kanye, period, Elon, period, Trump, period. And then like a day later, Kanye said we should kill every Jew, essentially. And then Jim Jordan kept that tweet up for about three months. So uh, let's, you know, think twice before we get in a back and forth uh, censuring game about, you know, what their own members have to say. Like the American people for the last three weeks watched the absolute chaos that the Republicans brought at the expense of getting things done on inflation, on health care, on keeping the government open, on funding the needs of the Middle East and Ukraine so that they could pick a new speaker. And we get right back to Congress. And this is the first thing they want to do. They're not serious about governing. Again, we're going to show we are serious about governing. And if they want anyone in this building who's going to help them get things done, as we have in the past, we stand ready. And I know you have to vote, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you do that. Do you want to go and, and vote and come back? I'm good. But no, do, I'm good. I'm, you I'm good. fired okay. up. I'm good. Yeah. Oh, you're fired up. So. Okay, so what, and a follow-up question on that. I mean, Republicans obviously don't care about optics, but attempting to censure the lone Palestinian uh, American in the Congress doesn't seem uh, like something any Democrats would get on board with, even though there's some Democrats who've been critical of Representative Tlaib's position. Is there a chance Democrats would vote for a censure resolution against one of their own members? I don't think many will. And again, what I see this as is, is that Republicans recognize that their nominee is going to be Donald Trump. And one of the biggest concerns Americans are going to have about Donald Trump is that the guy kind of ran a coup on the Capitol because he lost an election and it was violent and police officers were hurt. And we 
you know, very nearly were not able to carry out the certification. And so they must essentially erase that or at least create like a false equivalency. And so they're going to go after our colleagues and say, oh, what a Democratic colleague of mine did was essentially the same thing that Donald Trump did. And so tie goes to the runner, make Donald Trump the nominee. So we're not going to let them do that. Uh, and we're going to make sure that every single day the American people know they're more comfortable with violence than voting. And when it comes to policy, we have principles. They're absolutely bankrupt. And again, I think mainstream will always beat MAGA if that's a choice. Uh, Maura, let me go to you on this, because you did work for two normies, I guess I have to call it. it. At this point, there's literally two different kinds of Republicans, uh, and your, your, your wing is super small. I don't know if you realize how small it is. I mean, what does it say about the party that their priorities now are not funding the government? I mean, we are inside of 30 days now before the government shuts down, not figuring out what we want to do in terms of foreign policy and funding uh, allies. But making every single Republican adhere to the big lie. It's all they seem to care about. Ken Buck now has to go. He's a far right-wing Republican. He's not good enough. That's what's so jarring, I think, is, is to see someone who's really, really conservative drop out because of a stance that he took against Jim Jordan, who he didn't believe was fit to serve as Speaker of the House, and now he can't stay in Congress. I mean, it, it's telling of where we are in our party, but also our politics and how we're—and I hope some of these members who are who endured some of that hate and vitriol and, and really just— the mega uh, mob. Maybe they have a little sympathy now for their fellow colleagues, their former colleagues, uh, Adam Kenzinger and Liz Cheney, because they endured yeah. that for the better part of two years. Yeah. And it shouldn't be this way. We we now view each other as political enemies, even within our same, same party. Inside the party. That's right. a real problem. And it says something about our society that we have just gone too far. What, what do you make of the fact that you still have Tommy Tuberville on the Senate side continuing to block promotions inside of our military at a time when we're watching a war go on far away? The Marine Corps doesn't mm -hmm. have a leader. Uh, the person who should have been the commandant, uh, right. at least a senior person, had a medical issue, mm -hmm. and this is being blamed on Tuberville. He is now saying that Republicans should hold off on aid to Israel until the U.S.-Mexico border is addressed. What does that even mean? Republicans don't even have a bill for the border, but now he's added on top of ban abortion on all military and don't let anybody in the military have an abortion also do the border or he's not going to yield. What do you make of that? There's nothing more infuriating one than someone who should not be in Congress, who doesn't know what, what being a senator is, then decide to hold up the job of being a senator. I mean, it's beyond frustrating. And again, the Republican Party that I belong to, we're for our military. We're for our veterans. We support business. We support a strong foreign policy. We support a economic, you know, Fiscal conservatism. That's where we're at as a as a party, where we're supposed to be at. Um, but what Tuberville is doing is just showing his lack of experience uh, on full display, and he's just being an obstructionist, just for the sake of being a, an obstructionist. Yeah. Um, ha having a, a you know nationwide abortion ban and having this say over what the military men and women who are fighting to defend and stay, and protect us. Yeah. Which and he's then, never done. Which he has not done. So how do you get to stand there and block all of these promotions and things that we need for a stronger military? Yeah, Congressman Swall, let's go back to this issue of the funding, um, which Republicans do want to separate. They want to try to cleave off Ukraine because obviously, you know, they love Putin. Um, but this is how Mitch McConnell, I want to play for you real quick, I hope you can hear it, how Mitch McConnell tried to frame the argument onto, as to why Ukraine funding should be should, should, should happen. Take a listen. It requires a worldwide approach rather than trying to take parts of it out. It's all connected. The Chinese and the Russians said they're now friends forever. Iranian mm -hmm. drones are being used in Ukraine and against the Israelis. Let's talk about where the money's really going. 
a significant portion of it's being spent in the United States in 38 different states, replacing the weapons that we sent to Ukraine with more modern weapons. So we're rebuilding our industrial base. I mean, Congressman, I'm not sure that uh, saying let's fund the military industrial complex is the flex Mitch McConnell thinks it is. But what do you make of that argument, which apparently is also what the White House's strategy is to say, no, fund Ukraine because it's good for the U.S. economy. Yeah, fund Ukraine because it's good for our economy, it's good for our security, and it's good for our leadership in the world. But you know what? Republicans, for the longest time, I gave them the benefit of the doubt that they would talk tough on China. But now I see that they're soft on Russia. And so if, if you're going to talk tough on China, you have to stand up against Russia for what they're doing in Ukraine. And you have to be able to draw the straight line between Iran, who funded so many of the drone attacks that happened in Kyiv, and also funded the attacks that happened in southern Israel to help Hamas. And so if you don't understand that there is a through line here and that our security is at stake, our allies' security is at stake. And by the way, what the Republicans are doing by pulling out the Israel aid and also saying we're going to fund Israel, but the way we're going to do it is we're going to add $12 billion to the deficit and we're going to allow the richest people in America to skate on their taxes to do it. They're missing an opportunity. It's absurd. They're missing an opportunity to have a bipartisan vote to address all of our needs, as well as the humanitarian needs of innocent Palestinians in the area who need leadership and collaboration on this issue. Uh, I want to just uh, let our audience know that uh, the House has now voted to table uh, the uh, censure resolution against Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. So we are still waiting to see what happens with the rest of the censure resolutions. But that has now happened. And, and, I, and 23 Republicans, I will note for you, Maura, did vote to table the resolution. So there were at least 23 who didn't want to play the sort of censure game. Uh, I want to let you comment on that. The political aspect of this is pretty apparent here. And we saw that, you know, with Marjorie Taylor Greene bringing it up, that doesn't really give it a lot of credibility. Fair. So that's, I think that's a big part of it. At least I would think so. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm not that surprised that it got tabled. Uh, I'm curious to see what happens with the George Santos yeah. measure, uh, yeah. because it really should be, you know, the uh, Congressional Committee on Ethics sure. is a independent, you know, bipartisan uh, organization that yeah. looks into these things. And they seem to have a lot on him. And really wanted to have he the chance to do it. So, yeah. right. So kind of let them do it. And I think that's what L- we're let seeing Let me ask you one, one quick question before I get mm-hmm. one last in for the Congress, for the congressman. What is this thing about Putin that so attract? I mean, I, I understand that for on the Israel side, you have a lot of, you know, Christian nationalists like Mr. You know, Mr. Johnson, uh, Speaker Johnson, who they've got their own sort of worldview reasons for saying, yes, we're willing to send money there. And there's there's that part of it. What is this Republican affinity to Putin? What's funny to me, though, is that what I don't know, to answer your question. I don't understand, aside from the fact that when uh, former President Trump was president, he admired him. And And that's all it takes. I think we've all seen the impact that he has and that his words have. Coherent or not, his words have an impact on voters, and that's part of it. But I'd say another part, too, is that if they're going to be pro-Israel, which they are, but then how can you not be pro-Ukraine? Russia's still a player in both situations. Uh, can you answer this question, uh, Congressman? I don't know yeah, if, how yeah. much conversation you have with people on the other side of the aisle, but this, I don't know if it's adoration. I know for Trump it's adoration of Putin, but the Republican Party seems to have taken that on board. They will not do anything yeah. that they think Putin won't like. Why? I can tell you, as a son of two Republicans who was raised in the Ronald Reagan era, who believed we had to be strong in the Cold War to, to defeat Russia, 
It's very simple. It's Occam's raisin. Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is the correct one, which is Putin likes Trump. Trump likes Putin. Russia helped Trump in the 2016 election. Okay, we have to help Russia. That's as simple as it is. But now, as I said, with the Hamas attack on uh, southern Israel and Iran's role and Iran helping Russia as well, it's not so clear uh, to me as why they wouldn't want to help Ukraine defeat Russia when Iran is a common enemy and all of this. I'm going to go vote on the next one, Joy. Yes. And thank okay. you again for uh, working around this crazy schedule. Thank you for working around our schedule. We really appreciate you, Congressman. Congressman Eric Swalwell, we appreciate you. Thank you. And Maura Gillespie, thank you, our new friend of the show. We appreciate you. Coming up next on The Readout, the judge in Trump's civil fraud trial must have missed Donald's 2 a.m. warning to stay away from his children because he went ahead and dragged poor Don Jr. into court to testify today. Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. It is now November, which means that we are just about a year away from the next presidential election, a contest that may very well determine whether or not the U.S. remains a functioning democracy. One state that will be key in deciding the outcome is Arizona, which you'll remember was ground zero for election denial and misinformation in 2020. It was in Arizona's Maricopa County where we saw crowds of protesters on election night, some armed, chanting, let us in outside a processing center where votes were being counted. It was also home to several election conspiracies promoted by Donald Trump that were centered around things like Sharpies and bamboo ballots, claims that prompted the Republican-backed group cyber ninjas to do a full-scale audit, only to discover that Joe Biden actually won the state by more votes than originally were determined. But now, as we approach the next election, the people who worked tirelessly in 2020 to ensure the election was fair, despite all of that tomfoolery, are fearing for their own safety. Many are even leaving their posts after spending the past three years being inundated with an unprecedented level of harassment and death threats simply for doing their jobs. Today, local and state officials from swing states testified before the Senate Rules Committee on this very issue, including Arizona Secretary of State Adrian Fontes. Since 2020, 12 out of 15 of Arizona's counties have lost senior election officials. As a former county recorder myself, I can attest that the pre-2020 world for election administrators is gone. We don't feel safe in our work because of the harassment and threats that are based in lies. Just ask a former county recorder about her dogs, poisoned as a means of intimidation. Her story is one of many veteran Arizona officials from both political parties 
who've left the profession for the sake of their own physical, mental, and emotional health and that of their families. Joining me now is Arizona Secretary of State Adrian Fontes. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Joy. Um, I mean, the, the, the quote here, 98 percent of Arizona voters will see their elections run by somebody new next year. It is, it is frightening what's happening in your state. Yeah, well, you know, this is a function of, uh, this is actually a symptom of the big lie. The conspiracy theories have given some folks, uh, you know, they feel like they can do stuff that they shouldn't be doing. They feel like they've been aggrieved so much. And again, this is all based on lies uh, that they feel like they need to act out against the very officials who would ensure the freedoms that they purport to want to be defending, would ensure the real free, fair and accountable elections that they say that they want. Uh, but uh, the conspiracy theories have, have muddled things up so badly yeah. uh, that just regular civil servants are being threatened uh, day in and day out across the United States of America. Issue one put out this report uh, of 11 Western states, and it talks about sort of the losses across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, it's a pretty harrowing situation that we're in. You uh, you know you read from these remarks, but some of the stuff that you put in your your testimonies, uh, you know, the idea that. Social media has the capacity to create deep fakes that somebody, a foreign government you wrote, could create an AI generated deep fake of me, meaning you, telling voters that due to a power outage, we've relocated their polling place to another location. People would see or hear false images and audio with my face and voice delivering this AI generated misinformation. Imagine the confusion as people as people uh, circle parking lots in random parts of town attempting to vote. And then if you try to fix it. They might be like, I don't know if that's real, the real Adrian Fontes, or is this one? That is terrifying. Well, it is. And, and you know, we've all seen, uh, you know, on, on TikTok and other parts of social media, you know, uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger pretending to be like yeah. Whitney Houston. I got deep faked by people who claimed that I was selling weight loss gummies. And I'm like, I've never sold weight loss gummies. Well, but but again, close enough to the notion that, well, maybe Joy is selling weight loss gummies. Yeah. Maybe there's this other little thing. For an election official like me as the secretary of state to be saying, hey, we've got some issues over on this side of town. We're closing all of our polling sites. You need to go over and vote over here. If somebody deep faked that, that becomes a believable thing. Uh, so we're not just debunking lies yeah. and, and debunking nonsense. We need to start pre-bunking and preparing for the potential assault. Because, again, as I indicated in my written testimony, what if I then go on TV and say, no, that's not real? Right. All of a sudden, it's what looks like me contradicting what looks like me, yeah, and, and it becomes even a bigger mess. So we're asking federal officials to jump in and help now, mm-hmm. uh, which we're a little bit behind the eight ball because we don't know what generative AI is going to give us in three months or six months or a year from now, which yeah. is when the election is coming. Do you feel like the members of the committee, I hate to <laughs> besmirch you know, members of, of Congress, but do you think that they understand the technology with enough depth to really have a response to it? I don't think you have to understand the technology to understand the danger that yeah, it proposes. Fair. Yeah. Okay. To understand the fact that, look, we, cause everybody, everybody that was there on January 6th, they saw what could happen. Sure. Right. And that, that's terrifying enough. But to think that those sorts of messages can be put out to the general public on social yeah. media across the United States of America, they understand the seriousness of it. Here's the thing. How will they react? Yeah. And the only thing that, 
folks like me can do is come here to Washington, D.C., testify in front of these folks and bring as much attention as possible to the notion that Republicans and Democrats who run elections across the country alike, we're all asking for more money for uh, information technology security. We're all asking for more support from CISA uh, and the Department of Homeland Security so that we can make sure that we've got the fundamentals taken care of so that we don't fall victim to the folks that want to do us harm. And then uh, what do we do about the guns? I mean, you also write in your written testimony about having, you know, people who do what you do and your former job, uh, you know, in, in lo- even more local government in terms of elections, having to have go bags, having to be prepared to run on site because people are threatening folks who do elections. They're threatening to kill them because they don't like the, the, the outcome of an election. Well, you know, part of the part of the question that we had answered today was, what's the Department of Justice doing? You know, they've had several thousand complaints. They've prosecuted about 15 cases, some of them based in Arizona. Um, and I, I think the Department of Justice is doing well, but I think they can do more. Yeah, I think they can engage more local and state law enforcement officials to go do those initial knocks and just let people know, hey, knock on the door. Did you threaten somebody? Yeah. Can we start this investigation? Really, even if it doesn't result in criminal charges, the notion that law enforcement is paying attention to these things. Yeah. And not violating anybody's First Amendment sure. rights. Let's be really clear. But we're paying attention to these things. You can't just go unchecked. Yeah. The question really is, generally speaking, is there accountability in our systems for these Uh, you know, this tomfoolery, as you mentioned, these shenanigans that are attempted to slowly but surely erode the confidence that we have in one another, this civic faith that maintains our democracy. Uh, And we've got to have that accountability to stave that off and make it a thing of the past. Uh, It's it's a scary world out there when, you know, the the nicest people in the world, other than librarians, are election workers. They know your name. (laughs) They say, hey, baby, you're going to vote again. And they're threatening people with guns. It's crazy. Yeah, I've also got the pleasure of running Arizona State Library, so I get to deal with all those wonderful people as well. I get, I get both. All right. I'm going to come out to Arizona and visit. And I want to hang out at the library. You got to. Arizona Thank Secretary you. of State Adrian Fontes. Thanks. Thank you very much. And stay safe. Up next, Donnie Jr. takes a stand. More on that next. I mean, do y'all have federal... Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Well, it looks like Donald Trump was facing another bout of insomnia last night, going on the attack once again, targeting the New York attorney general and judge in his civil fraud case. In a post at 2.30 a.m., Trump demanded of Judge Arthur and Goron, leave my children alone and Goron. Well, about those children. They are adults in their 40s or late 30s. Kidults who were given very senior roles in the Trump administration by you, Donald. 
You even gave Ivanka a senior level job at the White House. In fact, when you began your presidency, you said you were handing over the keys to the family business to Don Jr. and Eric. Remember? And what I'm going to be doing is my two sons, who are right here, Don and Eric, are going to be running the company. They are going to be running it in a very professional manner. These papers are just some of the many documents that I've signed, turning over complete and total control to my sons. Now, we, we can gloss over the fact that those many documents you so nicely displayed were reportedly blank and that your staffers blocked journalists from seeing any of those folders. But, but there it is. Those so-called children were in charge. Don Jr. and Eric hold the title of executive vice president in the Trump organization, which is why New York Attorney General Letitia James named them as defendants in your civil fraud case and why Don Jr. was asked to take the stand today. But I can understand why you would mistake them for children. I can get it. You know, just listen to Donnie. Donald Trump has the nuclear codes! For the record, I'd say that if Donald Trump actually still had the nuclear codes, it'd probably be good. But you needed the HRT to exercise this warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Give me a break. They're acting like the fascists we've been seeing them be. I don't think Joe's smart enough to be like, hey, let's send them off the trail. Uh, don't hack the McDonald's on DC. The high interest rates combating the inflation has made homeownership almost impossible for many Americans. If Lizzo's oppressed, so is Donald Trump Jr., folks. Oh, he seems totally stable. We'll see, we'll see Don Jr. back on the stand tomorrow, followed by Eric. And then next week, the former president is expected to take the stand along with Ivanka. She is not a defendant in the case. Joining me now is NBC's Adam Reese, who is in the courtroom today, and Barbara Rez, former executive vice president of the Trump Organization. I laugh, but it's a very serious case. Adam Reese, what happened in court today? Had Don Joy. do? Joy, there's a lot on the line, as you know, for Don Jr., for his father, for the family, even for his inheritance. He came into the courtroom today. He was very confident. He was cracking jokes. He was speaking so quickly. There was a point where Judge Angeron said to him to slow down. He said, Judge, I've moved to Florida, but I've kept up the New York pace. The prosecutor walked him through the steps of his education. As you know, he went to Penn. He went to Wharton Business School. He said he took Accounting 101. He even knows what GAAP is, generally accepted accounting principles. But he said he never really got into the nitty-gritty. He always relied on attorneys, accountants. He said he always relied on his CPAs. He did say that even though his signature was on the statements of financial condition, this is a key part of this trial. He said he really didn't get involved in the compilation. Now, late in the afternoon, Joy, there was a key moment, a potential bombshell, when uh, the prosecutor showed a document which deals with the revocable trust. That is, as you mentioned earlier, Donald Trump handed the business over to his two boys, Eric and Don Jr., when he became president. But According to this document, he took back the business on January 15th, 2021. That means when he was telling the public that he had won the presidency, he knew deep inside, you can infer that he knew that he lost because he was taking the business back from his children. Now, Don Jr. will be back on the stand tomorrow, followed by Eric. On Monday, we will hear from the president himself 
back on the stand. As you know, he was forced to take the stand last week, and Ivanka reluctantly will take the stand next Wednesday. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Um, Barbara, uh, let's talk about uh, Don Jr.'s involvement in the business. Uh, what to what in your understanding, what is his level of invo- involvement? You know, it's I, I can speculate. I, I wasn't there when when Donnie was around, but I, I, Donald put him and, and Eric and Weisberg in charge of his company. It's hard for me to believe that that's necessarily true. I mean, they have their their uh, group of lawyers and accounts and all that stuff, and they are in place and they were doing uh, basically what they usually do. Um, but I do think that. Um, Certainly, Weisselberg knew what was going on. And I can't imagine that Don Jr. would not. Not to say that he made decisions. I don't imagine that he said, value this property, this, and value. I think Donald did that. I think Trump was involved all the way through. And and just to remind everyone of what those valuations look like, I mean, we're talking about taking uh, the Seven Springs property um, that was appraised at $30 million and saying it was worth $261 million, up to $291. 40 Wall Street, appraised value $540. Trump says, not $735. Mar-a-Lago, appraised at $18 to $27 million. Trump's value, $426 to $612 million. Trump National Golf Club, $16.5. He takes it to $73.4. million is what the Trump National Golf Club in L.A. is appraised at. He said, nope, 56.6. Trump Park Avenue appraised $750,000 per uh, 62000 per unit. But Trump said, yeah, I'm going to bump that up by 700%. Uh, Adam, did, did it come up in court today who decided on those valuations and whether it was Don Jr., who, though he signed it, or whether it was his father? Well, of course, Don Jr. passed it off. He said he relied on Alan Weisselberg, uh, Jeffrey McConney, uh, all of the accountants in the office, all the attorneys. But I want to mention, Joy, just before he took this stand, the sole expert witness for the prosecution took this stand. And he said because of these inflated valuations, the banks lost some $168 million. If the valuations were more accurate, they would have had, the Trump organization would have had to pay more for the loans. But because they were inflated, they were able to get loans at a lower price, at a lower interest rate. So essentially, they ripped off the banks $168 million. Wow. Uh, Barbara, you, you know, just to, you're in your dealings with the family, who does Donald have more to fear from in terms of their testimony? Don Jr., who came up today and, you know, smiled and was confident and said he didn't have anything to do with anything. He just signed it. Eric uh, Trump, who reportedly bragged about having access to $100 million in Russian money to a golf magazine, spilling the beans on that, or Ivanka? Yeah, interestingly, I think Ivanka, only because she sort of bailed out, she's trying to get out of this whole thing. She's trying not to be a part of it. So she might have, she might be the most um, damaging. The the other two, especially Junior, are so terrified of their father. I, I don't know how much they could come forward with, unless maybe there was like, you know, a threat of going to jail. And even then, it's it's hard to think. I, I hate to be so glib about it, but, the, but you know, they were terrified of him. And, and you know, I I think that they'd be very, very reluctant to um, make, uh, you know, make trouble for their their own father, except that they're both such clowns that maybe, you know, if if they 
prosecutor is um, is good and really grills them and trips them up, maybe they'll they'll let something go. Uh, we will be watching a uh, fascinating uh, case. Adam Reese and Barbara Ress, thank you both very much. Uh, Egypt opens its border to evacuate a limited number of civilians from Gaza as Israeli ground and air forces intensify their assault. We'll be right back. Today, uh, thanks to concerted American leadership, we're in a situation where safe passage for wounded Palestinians and foreign nationals to exit Gaza has started. The American citizens are able to exit today as part of the first group of probably over a thousand. We'll see more of this process going on in the coming days. A narrow lifeline has opened today at the Rafah crossing on the border with Egypt. Some people trapped in the Gaza Strip have begun to evacuate, including dozens of injured civilians and hundreds of foreign passport holders, including Americans and dual nationals. The crossing was opened after Egypt, Hamas and Israel agreed that up to 500 people can cross daily. This comes as international fallout continues over a massive airstrike on on Jabalia, the largest refugee camp in Gaza. Israel has claimed responsibility for the attack, saying it killed a senior Hamas commander. Dozens of other people were killed and hundreds wounded in the strike, according to a local hospital. Joining me now is Nita Khan, an independent journalist covering the Middle East, and David Rothkopf, columnist for The Daily Beast and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Thank you both for being here. David, I do want to go to you first on just the global reaction um, and, and, and anger over the bombing of the refugee camp. Does that change the calculus in your view for the Israeli government or not? Well, they've repeatedly said it's not going to change their view. They've also said they're going to have to steel themselves against this kind of criticism. Uh, But I, I, I have to think that gradually over the course of the next days and weeks, we're going to see more and more criticism as more and more civilians die. Uh, and so at some point, it could push this relationship to a different kind of a phase. And in particular, I think it's it's likely to put pressure on the Biden administration, which right now is very closely associated with the Netanyahu government, but is trying very hard to put humanitarian issues front and center. And if there's a rift there, that could be a game changer in terms of the future course of this uh, crisis. You know, I, I have noticed that, Nita, that you, you started out with the president being you know, very foursquare, uh, standing behind the Netanyahu government and Israel. Um, but lately, they have been trying to sort of, you know, communicate in a different way. John Kirby did this thing that they posted on Instagram where he's talking about humanitarian aid. Biden now is calling uh, for a pause in order to get humanitarian aid in. And now, of course, you have this Rafa crossing where a few hundred people are going to be allowed to leave. Does that—what do you think— for the community, for, you know, Arab Americans, for Muslim Americans, for Palestinian Americans, does any of that change in language change the, I don't know, the context for, for, for the community? So I think first, right now, I'm the commu- not- oh, so, I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Nita first, Nita first, and then uh, Dave. Uh, 
I'm not surprised that you know you're seeing them have a little change in the verbiage and some actions that they're doing because they have been getting so much pushback and not just from the Muslim or Arab community, but from a global response from the United Nations, from NGOs, from humanitarian organizations, from governments around the world, and protests around the world. So not only protests here, but global pushback saying, What are you doing here? You're killing thousands and thousands of innocent civilians. And I think the fact that, you know, while we celebrate and we have a little bit of good news that some folks have been allowed to cross over, it's still nothing compared to the amount of death and destruction that we're seeing. And I think, you know, it's really interesting. What popped into my mind was it's such a crazy dynamic that our own government, that President Biden went and gave Netanyahu a hug, stood on the stage next to him and pretty much gave him, you know, carte blanche, a blank check to do whatever he wants before securing the safe passage of American citizens. There are hundreds of American citizens stuck in Gaza, and there was nothing done to get them out of there before Netanyahu did this, what is essentially carpet bombing of the region. And also, secondly, what happens to the folks that are not foreign nationals, right, to the Palestinians that are stuck there as bombs rain down on them? So I think for a lot of people, they're worried. It's like a twofold thing. You're worried about the death and destruction, but they also don't want to see the Palestinians once again pushed into the Sinai, pushed out of Gaza, displaced once again, losing their land. So it's that entire, we're dealing with that entire situation. And for, if we go specifically to the Arab and Muslim community, they are utterly disgusted from everything I am seeing from all the reporting, from the polling. They're demanding a ceasefire, but they're, again, they're not the only ones, especially with the youth in this country. I wrote a piece about this last week. There's such a demand for an immediate immediate ceasefire. And the president and and our government are just not paying enough attention to the pulse of the nation and what they want. And they want an actual diplomatic resolution. And David, you know, the challenge for the Biden administration is, you know, that Joe Biden um, initially said some things that have really angered people in the U.S. and in, you know, the community, um, repeating that he had seen pictures of severed of people with their heads severed, which is a story that the IDF and the Israeli government wound up not being able to back up, uh, but saying he'd seen the pictures and then having to have that retracted, saying he didn't believe the Palestinian death toll. There's a piece in the AP or the Washington Post did an analysis uh, saying that Biden's dismissal of the reported Palestinian death toll, the president could have noted that based on previous Israel-Hamas wars, about one-third of deaths were likely to be combatants, but he swept away all the numbers as not credible. That's his opinion, but as remarkably uninformed by history and precedent. Some of the president's communication has been an issue. Um, Talk a little bit about the pressures on Biden and just how he communicates about this. Well, let me me start with saying um, I think that Uh, I I mean, I know that uh, prior to Biden going to Israel, Secretary of State Blinken spent seven or eight hours in negotiation with the Israelis in order to get concessions on the humanitarian issues. And the United States administration behind the scenes has been placing heavy emphasis on this. Now, that doesn't offset the fact that some of the things that Biden has said have been uh, insensitive, and it doesn't offset the fact that people within the uh, Arab American communities and uh, the Muslim American community more broadly are offended um, by what they are seeing from the Israelis, and they're offended by any American support for that. Uh, that said, 
the single greatest pressure on the Israelis to do the right thing, to pull back, to go slowly, to honor international law is coming from the United States. And I would add two other things very quickly. One, today, the president of the United States and the vice president announced a new anti-Islamophobia initiative, the first we've ever seen. And two, and I know that some people shrug this off, but I think it's important to point out the last president of the United States who wants to be the next president of the United States was an Islamophobe. He wanted to ban Muslims from entering the United States. And he was a guy who really did give carte blanche to Bibi Netanyahu. So Biden may be handling this imperfectly in some people's eyes, but he is much, much, much better than the alternative. I, I wish we had more time, but we are up against a break. Uh, Nita Khan and David Rothkoff, thank you both very much. Uh, excellent points made by both. We'll be right back. Before we go, some breaking news from Capitol Hill. The vote to expel George Santos, Republican congressman from New York, has failed. It failed on a vote of 213 no's to 175 yeses, 179 yeses. 19 people voted present. There he is speaking to reporters right now. And be sure to check out the readout blog. Uh, Jahan Jones breaks down Jim Jordan and James Comer's plot to stop the D.C. probe into conservative cash cow Leonard Leo. The Jordan and Comer defense team seem to have found a new client. And there is a Mr. MAGA pageant underway in Arizona. Read Jahan's thoughts on the two Trump fanatics fighting for an open House seat in the desert and how it's dividing Republicans nationwide. And that is tonight's readout. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Follow. 